Good morning, all. Come on in. We've got a lot of wonderful information to cover this morning. So, Happy New Year. Happy Lord's Day, which is even better. Come on in. So today, as you're finding your way in, we are going to uh, do Module 4, Session 4. We're going to continue looking at the background of the New Testament, and I'll tell you why we're doing that in just a moment. And I know others are kind of trickling in, so we'll pray here for a moment. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you this morning on a nice cool day, the Lord's Day, and it's the first Lord's Day of the new year, Lord, in our calendar system here. And so we ask you, God, for all of us to make this a year in which the Lord's Day is even more important to us, more set apart, more holy, more sacred, Lord, so that we might be made more in the image of Christ. I pray that this is a year that our church worships together at an even higher level and, and uh, that we prioritize the honoring of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we prioritize the, the preaching and the teaching and the hearing of sound doctrine and of the Word of God, and that we might become more and more enamored with our Savior, Lord, that we would be known to heaven as a church that loves Christ and that we would be known to our community as a church that loves the gospel. And so I pray that even this morning, as we just do some background information, Lord, that it would make us better students of the word and those who are better able to understand our God and our Savior. And we pray in Christ's name, amen. Okay, so what we're going to continue today, and really the, the majority part of it, we, we started this a few weeks ago, just a little bit, but we're going to continue doing the background to the New Testament. And you might say, wow, I'm already feeling sleepy just hearing that word background. And I understand that, but I also understand that the majority of Christians read their New Testament, and I'll bet every one of you can raise your hand if I asked how many, how many of you have ever read something, some technical detail, like the elders and the scribes, and in the back of your mind, you think, I should really find out what that's about. And then it's time to go to work, and, and the day goes, and the next morning you're in the next chapter. Then the scribes and the elders, I should really find out what that's about. Fast forward 25 years, and you're back to this same passage, the scribes and the elders. I should really find out what that's about, and you never do. And so the background of the New Testament helps you understand just some of the building blocks of, of particularly in the Gospels, um, what's going on. And so I, I find it very useful and I, I, something I, like, I love to review. Anytime I'm going to teach out of the Gospels, I go back and review background information because I want to know what's happening in the world and in, in uh, Israel in particular. So this background information is meant to help you as you read your Bible have a better context to understand who these people really are. So we're going to divide this into a few uh, big parts here, and we'll see how much of it we get through today. Uh, we're going to start with the social background. First of all, where are we here? And, and you might kind of picture the beginning of the New Testament as kind of the, the era we're talking about here. We have to go back before that, though, to what uh, scholars call the intertestamental period. 
the intertestamental period, um, the, or sometimes called the second temple period. If you read that in the commentary, they might say during second temple Israel. What does that mean? It means the temple that was built after the return from exile, that's the second temple. And that goes all the way from uh, the 5th century BC to 70 AD because the temple was destroyed once again in 70 AD. So the, the majority of the Jews though, and this is, this is something important for us to grasp, in the New Testament period, particularly after 70 AD, but the majority of the Jews are not living in the Palestine area. 80% of them don't live there. And so you already have now um, what we have today. Uh, For example, um, New York City has more Jews than any place on earth except for Israel itself. Um, And they don't belong in New York, according to uh, eschatological understanding. Someday, the true Jews, the ones who uh, belong to Christ, will come to Israel. And that will be their home. But that's the same thing uh, then as it is now. So you'll see in various New Testament books, for example, 1 Peter and James speak to the dispersion or the diaspora, the dispersed Jews, particularly the Christian Jews. So you have to understand that the majority of Jews are not living in Palestine. That helps us understand why, um, uh, uh, for example, at Pentecost, why why was there the need for the apostles to preach the gospel in 15 different languages to Jews because they were coming from all over the world. They had been raised in other parts of the world and so they spoke different languages. And so um, that is, it's great for our understanding. It's also good to know that at this time the population of the Roman Empire is estimated between 25 and 50 million. Not, I know we practically have cities almost that big now, but that was the population of the Roman Empire. But that's important because Jerusalem... In the time of the the New Testament, was considered a very large city. There were twenty to thirty thousand people living in Jerusalem, with a hundred thousand or so in the surrounding area. That was actually pretty large for the for the time. It would have put Jerusalem probably in the top twenty or thirty cities in the Roman Empire as far as population. During feast times, the population would jump up to well over two hundred thousand, and so now you're you're at a level of an Ephesus or a Corinth where you're, you're just this huge city. So uh, Jerusalem was not just some little dot on the map. Um, I used to live in central Texas, and we used to say in the towns there, unless they have a speed bump, you won't even notice that you're going through it. And that wasn't Jerusalem at all. It was, it was very central in the Roman Empire. So that's sort of some introduction um, to, some, to uh, the, the, where people lived. But specific to Palestine, and we're using the word Palestine because um, according to Roman history, Israel as a nation didn't exist. It was, it was, they called it Palestine, and that's geographically what we would call it. Um, we generally say Israel, but we'll stick with the more technical term Palestine right now. Um, there were some different people that you should know about. There were the aristocrats. These are the, uh, what the New Testament calls the elders. And that's important for you to understand because in our context, in the Bible church, when we say elders, you think spiritual men who lead other spiritual people. That's not what the New Testament means by elders, um, in, especially in the Gospels. As far as in Jerusalem, in Palestine, elders were not religious leaders. 
they were non-religious leaders. They are basically the aristocrats. They're the landowners. They are the, the men with money, men with property. They would hire fellow Jews to work their land and would hire them by the day. Um, we think about Jesus telling the parable of the landowner. They arose during the time of the Ptolemies, 200 to 300 B.C., and they became very, very good at switching their loyalties. So in other words, what happened in Israel is what, um, what we see happening under, under any liberal or totalitarian type government, and that is a huge divide between those who have a lot and those who have very little. And that there is really no such thing as the middle class as we have in, in our country. And so you had a few who owned almost everything. And you most people you had um, that were day laborers or had very little small businesses and so forth. But the elders got really, really good at something. Generationally, they got good at switching loyalties. Because... Uh, in Palestine, they never had a big standing army. And basically, first the Greeks took over for a while, and then eventually uh, uh, the Romans took over. So whoever was in power, the aristocrats, the elders, would go along with it. Why was that? Well, it was a very simple deal. How about this to the ruling uh, power? How about this? I have influence over this area of land. I have influence over all the people who work for me, who work around me. How about I make sure that they're loyal to you and I keep everything I own? And generally, the ruling powers would say that's a deal. That is a good deal for them. And so one of the things that happened as a result of the elders wanting to maintain power is that they formed a ruling council in Jerusalem that we know as the Sanhedrin the, the, or the ruling council. Seventy men, most of them were elders, meaning those who were ruling Jerusalem were not religious men. They were not men who even claimed faith in Yahweh. Um, they were Jews by, uh, by birth. But they, so what they did was they took the non-religious, the elders, and then they put a few token religious men on there, the priests. And so you had this mixture of, uh, if you imagine this, if you imagine that uh, suddenly in Bakersfield we're going to have a, a new uh, ruling council that looks like it's religious, and we take three pastors, put it on that uh, council, and then about 60 uh, of the wealthiest people in town who couldn't care less about God one way or another, and then we say, we're ruling religiously. That wouldn't, that wouldn't fly. There were some good men on the Sanhedrin. I think of Gamaliel. Uh, he questioned what they were doing to the apostles after the ascension of Christ. He was also the man who trained the apostle Paul in the Old Testament. So uh, the Sanhedrin was a, a, the ruling council, but it wasn't God-ordained. There's no, in the Old Testament, there's no structure given called the Sanhedrin. There's no ruling council of the of the. Uh, uh, of the elite. It's not God ordained. It was really an economic authority more than a religious authority, but they tended to side with the Sadducees. We'll, we'll talk about them uh, a little bit later. The Sadducees tended to be more uh, what we might call today, we might call uh, functional atheists who say they believe in God, but they live as if they don't. Um, Sadducees didn't believe in an afterlife. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They believed you get everything you can now. That's why the elders really liked the Sadducees. You're a religious man I can relate to. You know, when, when a completely um, 
unreligious man says to you as a Christian, I can really relate to you. That's probably a problem. Um, So that's why they sided with the Sadducees. The Romans looked to the Sanhedrin to deal with the religious and the civil issues and to keep peace in the land. And so the elders were, they they had one major priority, and that was keeping peace with the Romans. So when Jesus is walking the countryside with 20 and 30,000 people following after him, the Sanhedrin aren't dumb. They know that if every one of those people just pick up a sword, we've got an army to contend with. And so, of course, they went after Jesus. And it wasn't because that they, they were so um, religiously zealous that they were defending the God of the Old Testament in their own mind. That's just the excuse they gave. The reason was that they were defending their own uh, sense of well-being because they didn't want to rip, make any ripples with Rome whatsoever. And so that's, that they protected power. So those are the elders. So from now on, when you read in the, in the Gospels, the elders, don't think of them as good religious men. Think of them as selfish, bad, non-religious men. And yet they're in charge of, of so much, even up to uh, the ability to crucify Christ. But then you have the religious establishment. And, and I guarantee you that behind closed doors, the elders and the religious establishment did go after one another. They did uh, butt heads. Um, but the religious establishment was so wicked in their own right that they didn't really stand for that much. And so they tended to just cave to the elders. They were the chief priests, the priests, and the scribes. And so uh, we could look at these individually. The chief priests... They were associated in some way with the high priest. The high priest was the representative of the priestly family. And you've heard me talk about this before, but Rome technically installed the high priest or the chief priest, um, but it always stayed in the same family. There, there, was, there was just a few different families over the course of many, many years that were actually the chief priest's family. In fact, uh, you've, you've read in the New Testament about the money changers that uh, Jesus drove out of the temple. He did it twice, once at the beginning of his ministry and once at the end. Um, the, the money changers, that little fair or that little uh, organization, that little uh, event was known to them as Annas Bazaar. Annas was the, the most popular uh, chief priest why was it called the Bazaar of Annas or Annas's Bazaar? Well, because the reason the, the chief priests allowed all the money changing, the selling of animals and so forth in the temple courtyard was because they all paid a fee to have a booth and they paid a fee from their profits. And guess who the fee went to? Didn't go to the temple. It went to the chief priest's family. Uh, what do we call that today? We call that the mafia. That's what it was. It was a criminal organization that protected the family at all costs. And if you read the account of the trials of Jesus, you see the former chief priest and you see his son-in-law, who's now the chief priest, enter the word Godfather. And that's basically what it was. So the chief priests were absolutely corrupt. They, they had no um, interest in leading Israel spiritually whatsoever. It was all money for them. They were wealthy, they were self-serving, they were corrupt. And so you can see how the chief priests could, could sort of get along with the elders, at least publicly, because to a certain degree, they all had one interest, and that was money. And they had to protect that interest by defending Rome. 
the priests, of course, went along with the chief priests. Um, we would actually say that the priests had a little bit better shot at being spiritual men. Some of the priests came to faith in Christ. We know this from, uh, from the book of Acts. And then you have the scribes. The scribes had an interesting beginning. They were the ones responsible for the copying of the Old Testament manuscripts. And so, well, why is that necessary? Well, when you got to the synagogue system, which was new to the New Testament, you had to have a scroll of the Torah, the law of God, for every synagogue. And every copy of the Torah had to be handwritten. And so the scribes were responsible for the, the copies, the transmission of the text. And there are whole books written on the techniques, the methods, and even the ethics of the scribes. Um, the, the scribes, for example, a, a, a scribe who w- had genuine faith in God, they believed that every time they wrote the name of God, they would then set their pen down, they would go wash their hands. Um, in fact, they did it before writing the name of God. They would come, having been ceremonially cleansed, write four letters in Hebrew, Yahweh, and then go back and wash their hands once again before they continued because they wanted to be pure. And so there is a sense in which um, the scribes were very, very careful about the transmission of the text. It, it, it's sort of like no matter what their political affiliations, no matter what they uh, believed about, uh, about money, once you got to actually copying the word of God, they sort of elevated to a higher level, which is why uh, you know, I've been told by some of our, our law enforcement guys here in the church that strangely enough, churches are rarely vandalized compared to other types of uh, so-called businesses. Why is that? Because even criminals think that they might go to hell if they spray paint a church. And so the scribes were very, very careful um, about transmitting the text. And the scribes are one of the reasons that we have a very accurate Old Testament today because they were super careful about it. Now, you might say, why are they such a big deal in the scriptures, in, in the New Testament in particular? If you sat down and copied the entire Old Testament over and over and over again, dozens, hundreds of times, what does that make you? It makes you an expert in the Bible because just, you just have this massive knowledge of the word of God. And so the scribes also became teachers of the word. In fact, we have an example in the Old Testament of a scribe who was a teacher of the word. His name was Ezra. And because you could ask them any question about the Bible and they knew it. I have, a, I have a friend in the ministry, and I wish somebody had done this with me, but as a very young pastor, he came in as an associate pastor, and his, his role was going to be eventually a takeover for the senior pastor. The senior pastor was already near retirement age, and so they brought this young kid in. His name uh, is Tommy Nelson, and I was discipled by him. And they brought him in, and the older pastor told him, you will spend 25% of your time in sermon preparation, and you'll preach once. And you, you might say you're not getting your money's worth. For a, a period of years, Tommy Nelson was directed that he must read the Bible 75% of his work week. Just reading the Bible. To this day, you can ask Tommy any verse in the Bible and he'll, start, he'll, he'll finish it for you if you begin it. Simply by virtue of reading it. And, he's, and he, by his own admission, he was an athlete who graduated from college with like a 2.0. But just the sheer repetition. So when you see scribes, these are men who know the Bible better than anybody else. And when a scribe is asking Jesus a question, that's a big deal, especially when they're testing him and Jesus always nails them. Or a scribe who asks a humble question, what is the, what is the greatest law? 
And when Jesus answers, the greatest law is that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and, you will, and the second is like it. You will love your neighbor as yourself. And the scribes said, yes, I, that's absolutely true. So the scribes are important. So they're not just guys who know how to write. They are the most knowledgeable men of the word in Palestine, in Israel. So all of the above that I've talked about, the elders and the chief priests, the scribes, they made up 5% of the population, but they had all the control. Kind of sounds like our, where our country is going in some ways. And so that's the, that's the religious establishment. Now, what about the people of the land? I know this is all on one, one slide, but I don't expect you to, to memorize all this. The people of the land. What uh, the New Testament very often, especially in the Gospels, um, calls the crowds or the multitudes. What about the other 95%? Who are they? Most of them were people concerned with very basic survival. Um, the, the average Jewish individual at the time of Christ was a day laborer who worked, worked for elders, who worked for, for landowners. And, you know, today, when we think of day laborers, we think of the minority of our, of our population. But in Jesus' day, that was the majority of the population. That's why gathering at the town square to look for work was a big deal, and it was crowded. And the landowners would come and just, just get uh, men to come and work for them. Many Jewish men stayed around the city, hoping that a landowner had work for them that day. That's why when Jesus told the parable of the landowner who paid uh, one man who worked for 12 hours the same amount that he paid one man who worked for one hour and the, the worker who got paid for 12 hours the same amount was upset about that. In that day, telling a parable of a landowner, if, uh, if Jesus said, once there was a landowner, all of the day laborers would stop and they would say, I want to hear this story. And interestingly, Jesus told a parable of a righteous landowner, which would have made them scratch their heads and go, I've never heard of that. Who's the righteous landowner? Well, it's God, of course, in that story. There was in Palestine a tremendous amount of poverty. Generally speaking, uh, the socioeconomic conditions were better up north in Galilee than in Judea. That's mostly because they had the Sea of Galilee and you could literally go catch your supper or you could go uh, catch enough fish to sell. And they did have a way to transport fish uh, at least to uh, some of the surrounding areas. So it was a little bit uh, more well-to-do in Galilee than it was in Judea. See if this sounds familiar. The elders, the chief priests, and the scribes politically speaking, generally viewed the multitudes, the other 95%, as belonging to them. In essence, the lower class belonged to the upper class. Not just that, that, uh, that they lived in different economic situations, but they lived under the influence of the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and so they must do the bidding of the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. And a lot of that was tied to money. And the average day laborer knew that if you made enough landowners mad, your family was going to starve. And so uh, they would go along with whatever was happening. So when the man like Jesus starts affecting the multitudes, the leaders become jealous. They become angry because the multitudes belong to the leaders, not to Jesus. Power tension now that uh, uh, began to take place between the aristocracy, the elders, and Jesus 
And the battle lines basically were drawn over who gets to influence the multitudes. And so when a landowner makes a guy work 12 or 13 hours and gives him a loaf of bread for his day and the, and the, the, the day laborer is expected to be grateful for that loaf of bread and take it home and tell his family that they'd be grateful or else they won't get a meal the next day. And then you compare that to Jesus who says, sit down on this grassy lawn in the springtime overlooking the Sea of Galilee and sit here and my disciples will bring you bread for free and fish and feed you well. And then you'll hear the word of God preached. Landowners didn't like that. They didn't like men who were giving away free food. They certainly didn't like men who were challenging their authority. So Jesus was in their sights for quite some time. Who won that battle eventually? Well, um, from a human standpoint, the religious leaders won that battle because they influenced the crowds to yell something on the day that Christ was crucified. It was the multitudes crying out, crucify him, crucify him. And I guarantee you that the elders were looking around to see who was loyal and who was not. So it, it was very much a Marxist type society where there's very, very few who control the multitudes and Jesus was, was uh, from a human standpoint, caught in the middle of that, although he inserted himself exactly in the time of history that he um, intended. So all of the information I've just given you is information gleaned from outside the Bible. And so when you read the New Testament and you see that it lines up exactly with what historians, saved or not, historians already know is exactly the political situation, the social situation in Palestine, um, the New Testament is, is totally 100% accurate in its portrayal of the times, and which is phenomenal. And that helps us uh, be confirmed in our belief in Scripture as inspired as inerrant. So that's the kind of the social and the political background that was happening. Um, Jesus came at a time where to be Jesus was the, it was the most dangerous time ever. I mean, if Jesus had come, uh, say, and I'm just being a little silly here, if he had come uh, the, in the middle of the Great Reformation, I think there would have been generally a welcoming heart. But Jesus chose the time to come where he would be crucified. That was in, an inevitable result based on his actions. So that's the time he chose to come. Then we could talk about the diaspora, the dispersed 80% of the Jews. And we'll just spend a little bit of time on this. Because there were about four different uh, four different categories of the diaspora. There were the Hebraists. Uh, Acts 6.1, a dispute between new believers who were Hebraists. They were disp- disputing with the Hellenists. The Hebraists, they, we would call them the, the Jews of the Jews. They spoke Aramaic, but at synagogue, uh, the Old Testament was read in Hebrew. Instruction was given in Aramaic, but they knew Hebrew well. All the children went to Hebrew school. They could be uh, from the dispersion, but they were also in Judea as well and and in Jerusalem. Who's the most famous Hebraist that we know? It would be the Apostle Paul. He knew Hebrew back and forth uh, to read. He could teach in Aramaic. And he was fluent in Greek and probably in Latin as well. And so he was very well educated, but he was, um, he even calls himself a Jew of the Jews. That's where the Hebraist was. But then you had the, the Hellenists, 
Acts 6.1 refers to them as well. They were Jews, but they were predominantly Greek speakers. They were, uh, in our culture, for example, in, a, in, in our country that is made up of immigrants, you can tell the difference between a first generation and a third generation immigrant. And so the Hellenists were more like the third generation. They were Jews, but they predominantly spoke Greek. Um, they went to synagogue, but they didn't know Hebrew. Uh, they didn't know Aramaic. And so, of, of course, in the church, you had a dispute arising between the Hebraists and the Hellenists because they were essentially Jews who lived two different cultures completely. And uh, by the way, we use Acts 6 as one of our models for how we set up our Spanish ministry because what, was the, what, what did the apostles say to do? We're going to do whatever it takes to bring these groups together into one church. And so that's our model as well. We don't, we, they didn't separate them. They brought them together. And how did they bring them together? They brought them together by, uh, by appointing some men to serve both sets of them. And you can read that story for yourself in Acts 6. Then you had the proselytes. These are, we see these in Acts 2, Acts 6, Acts 13. These are Gentiles physically who convert to Judaism. And the, and the Old Testament allows for this, of course, they had to be circumcised, they had to go to Jerusalem, they had to make a sacrifice, and religiously they became a Jew. Now that becomes a problem uh, in Jesus' day because in Jesus' day the Jews reverted back to believing that only physical descendants of Abraham um, could be in God's favor. Uh, but in fact, the, the law of God has always said um, that the sojourner, the foreigner, may come in and be part of you and he's treated exactly like a physical Jew which gives us hope in the church. And then you had the God-fearers. Acts 10, Acts 13, 16, 17, and 18. These are Gentiles who believe in the God of the Jews. Now, the level of their belief varies. What they know varies. Some of them even went to synagogue. But they didn't convert to Judaism. They didn't become religious Jews. They just believed in the one true living God. They believed that there was a Messiah to come, but they didn't become Jews. Now, take a wild guess. Out of these four groups, who the biggest responders to the gospel were in the book of Acts? Which one do you think? God fears you guys are well-educated. Absolutely. They were not encumbered by legalism. They... They were looking for God. They weren't looking for a religious system. They became fully in Christ without circumcision or without going to Jerusalem. And of course, this caused a huge controversy in a church primarily made of Jews. Wait a minute. To many of the Jewish Christian leaders, you had to become a Jew before you could become a Christian. In fact, a lot of the Pharisees who got saved still clung to that. And so in Acts 15, you have this conference um, among the apostles that basically they ruled rightly so that you come to faith in Christ by faith not by becoming a Jew they gave some other admonitions as well but so that's the the diaspora um, but to be honest with you if you're a God-fearer and you come to worship Jesus Christ according to the government you become a Jew and so that was used as an excuse, for example, in the late 40s A.D., um, Emperor Claudius kicked all the Jews, including all the Jewish Christians, and including a lot of Christians, out of Rome and, and just booted them out completely. Once he died, they were allowed to come back. 
But so that's the diaspora. And this is important because you have um, book of first Peter written to the diaspora, the book of James written to the diaspora. Um, can you think of the most obvious book in the New Testament maybe written to those who are Hebrew? Hebrews, there you go. Yeah, it's early. We'll get your coffee after, after church. But um, so that's important to us. And we need to understand that. Uh, we could make the case, too, that the book of Romans is written primarily to Jewish believers, um, although Paul also addresses Gentiles. So understanding this, you can't just ignore that. You can't just say, well, I don't really know any Jews, so the New Testament has nothing to do with Jews. No, it's all about Jews. Um, the end of the New Testament, the book of Revelation, uh, wh- where do you see the church? Revelation 1, Revelation 2, Revelation 3. And we're gone. You don't see the church again until about Revelation 18 or 19. Actually, actually 19. Because now God is focused on finishing his program with Israel, with the Jews. So that's the diaspora. Let's look at the, let's look at the uh, religious background. And you might say we've already covered that. Well, sort of. I don't know if we're going to make it through all this religious background. Let's talk about some of the places because you'll, you'll read these in the, in the gospels. You have the temple that is the, the center of Jewish worship. And we're familiar with that. But when it talks about the temple, remember this is the, there's two things to understand about the temple in the new Testament prior to 70 AD when it was destroyed. The first one is, is that the version of the temple built by the exiles was basically a miniature tiny version of Uh, what Solomon built. In fact, it was so diminished from the original that the book of Ezra, Nehemiah, uh, records that the older Jews who remembered Solomon's temple were weeping at this little bitty thing. I mean, imagine moving from a 5,000 square foot house to a 700 foot apartment and being told, be happy with it. That's what they were going through. But the second thing to understand is that Herod the Great who came to power in 37 BC, one of the things he did was he started a temple renovation uh, program. It wasn't even finished by his death. It was still going, in fact, at the time of Christ. It it went for about 80 years. And that was to make the Jews happy. And the result was that by the time Jesus is on the scene, the temple has regained a sense of of its elevation. There's a nice courtyard. Um, It has been rebuilt uh, fairly nicely by that point. But then you have the synagogues. This was a a new development. The synagogues uh, is from a Greek word that means gathering together. The synagogue, the the gathering of us together. It was developed as a place of worship and instruction. They were small places where instruction in Torah uh, could take place. And if you picture synagogues like a temple, that's not probably a correct picture. Um, I've been to the synagogue in Capernaum. And the synagogue in Capernaum where, where Jesus was there and, and he taught, it is the, the, the main meeting room is probably a fourth of the size of this room that we're in right now. And what they did, though, was that the, around the outside, there were sets of stairs or, or, or col- uh, not columns, but steps. And you just sat on them. Have you ever bought the $4 tickets at a baseball game and you don't even get a seat back? It's just steps like that. Well, that's what it was. So you could stack people around in there and stack people on the floor and even outside. So synagogues, um, the Jews felt better to have lots of little places to gather and worship than, uh, than just one big one. That was a way to maintain control um, over the people. The synagogue also 
um, was sort of the community center. That's where you gathered. It was probably the biggest gathering room in any village or any town. And so you also had, uh, you also had uh, weddings there. You had funerals there. Very similar to what churches have become today. And so um, uh, that was their place of gathering. Acts 6 shows that there were synagogues even in Jerusalem. Oh, wait a minute, that's where the temple is. Yeah, but you had to walk a long ways to get to the temple and not everybody could go to the temple at once, so you could go to the synagogue. It was the the social and the religious center of the community. Very much in in Jewish communities in, in our country today, the synagogue is still the central place that you gather and you do everything there. At the synagogue, you got scripture reading, you got instruction from a scribe or from a, a, a priest or the head of the synagogue. Um, there were times of prayer. You also sent your boys there during the week for instruction. It was a place of social interaction, economic interaction. Um, Gentiles were welcome there, but they tended to have to sit with the women and the children, but they could sit and listen to the reading of Scripture. Um, Very often, depending on the synagogue, the Scripture was first read in Hebrew, maybe it was read in Aramaic, then it was read in Greek. And so they attempted to to be multi-language, multicultural. There were instructions, there were prayers, and even prayers for the Gentiles. Because, you know, the Jews in the smaller villages, they acknowledged the reality that, Look, I'm a Jew, I'm of the chosen people of God, but my neighbors on either side of me are both Gentiles and I interact with them every day. And so there was a sense of greater interaction. And so even without circumcision, at some level you could be a worshiper of God. You could even go to the temple because at the temple they had a court of the Gentiles. It was still an outer temple, but you could still go and worship God at some level. And so the, the gospel then went progressively to the God-fearing Gentiles it wasn't a radical transition to the Gentiles. There was a progression. Now, the question is, were the Gentiles saved before their knowledge of Christ? Uh, we would say either you have to know Christ fully to be saved, and we all agree with that, or they would be in the category of an Old Testament sojourner, an Old Testament Gentile who had genuine saving faith in the God of the Old Testament, believed he was the one true living God, believed that he needed to repent of sin, believed that he needed blood sacrifice in order to be saved. And so um, that's between them and God. But um, we would say that there was a definite progression, that the God fears when they heard the name of Christ, they heard the gospel, it was a no-brainer for them. Of course, this is the last piece to the puzzle. And so they came willingly to Christ. And so there was a a definite progression. So the God-fearing Gentiles, don't picture them as people who, you know, one day were kind of running naked through the woods and sacrificing humans and, and things like that. They weren't like druids. These were civilized, sophisticated people who believed that the God of the Old Testament was the one true living God and forsook pagan idol worship of all kinds. They just didn't know Christ. And so that was the final piece for them. Then you have the the parties of the first century. And they were pseudo-religious. My little deal is not working here. Let's see if I can get it going again. Do I have a technical person in the house? who can push that, uh, that forward button. Just one, where it says the parties of the first century. Maybe it's just stuck. Well, I'll just keep talking for a bit. The parties formed at various times, there we go, um, during the intertestinal, 
intertestamental period. And you'll read about two of these in particular, and then some of the others might be less familiar to you. The Hasidians, or the Hasidim, these formed during the 4th and 3rd centuries B.C., and their name means the pious ones. They're the ones who led the Maccabean revolt. They resisted Hellenization under the Syrians, under the Greeks, and they strictly were devoted to the law. They they rigidly observed the Sabbath. They are the forefathers of the Pharisees. Um, There's no direct reference to the Hasidim or the uh, Hasidim. Uh, Hasidians in the New Testament, but they are definitely in the picture historically. Then you have, more familiar uh, to us, the Pharisees. The Pharisees formed after the Maccabean Revolt of 165 to 160 BC, and their name means separate. They separated themselves from all pagan practices. They were committed to being fully Jewish. And in fact, they wanted to take control of Judaism um, away from the priests. And so I know it's hard for us to picture this, but the Pharisees started off pretty good. Um, They started off wanting to take control from the priests. Why? Because the priests were already becoming corrupt. And so the Pharisees wanted to get back to more genuine worship of God. They had a definite theology. They had an accurate view of the attributes of God. If you asked a Pharisee, what do you think of God? You would agree with everything he says. They had a belief in the free will to choose to do good or evil, to choose righteousness or unrighteousness. They did not have an understanding of regeneration. They didn't have an understanding of uh, God's sovereign will in salvation. And, And so you might say, oh, they're bad. They believe in free will. Don't think of it that way. Think of it in terms of they believed that any human being ought to be able to choose to follow God of his own will. And for them, that was a that was a good thing. And and we should acknowledge that that they wanted people to follow God. This is at least at the beginning. They believed that the Torah uh, consisted of written and oral law. So in other words, there's the written law of God, but then there is tradition. Now you start to go off track just a little bit. They believed that true worship was really more found in studying the Bible and not so much in the sacrificial system. And so now you go off track even more. Uh, Jesus even said, you read the scriptures and you believe that in them you have salvation. You don't get saved by reading the Bible. You get saved by means of reading the Bible. Does that make sense? And when an unbeliever stands before God and says, but I read the Bible 10 times, that, didn't, that won't save him. He has to be saved by faith. They believed in life after death. They believed in resurrection. They believed in angels. They believed in demons. And they were almost always against Jesus. But a few of them got saved. There were some famous saved Pharisees, uh, three in particular, Nicodemus, to whom Jesus spoke in, in uh, John 3. He was called the teacher of Israel. He was the lead, the, the top teacher of Israel. We have Joseph of Arimathea, who was um, actually probably on the Sanhedrin. And then we have the Apostle Paul. They're the most famous saved Pharisees. The teaching of the Pharisees continues today. Did you know that? It's the basis for uh, liberal rabbinic teaching today in, in synagogues, that they still look back to the writings of the Pharisees. Why is that? Same reason other pseudo-godly religions exist. Well, we believe in the Bible, but we also believe in the oral traditions of things that men have done. That's the mistake that Jehovah's Witnesses make, uh, Mormons, the Roman Catholic heresy and religion. Same mistake. So it continues today. Now, there were a group of men that were similar to the Pharisees, but they didn't really like each other, and those are the Sadducees. 
Um, many of them were priests, but not all of them were. And you can see that now uh, the Pharisees, remember, wanted to take control away from the priests. And because some of the Sadducees were priests, you can already see there's a, a conflict between them. They controlled the affairs of the temple. No wonder the Pharisees wanted to take things away from the priests because the one thing the Pharisees didn't control was the temple. They were on the outside. And so the Sadducees controlled the affairs of the temple, which also explains why the Sanhedrin, the ruling class, tended to side with the Sadducees. Because if you side with the Sadducees, you're in control of the temple through the Sadducees. The the Sadducees exercised political control through the Sanhedrin, even during Roman rule. Their theology was, was quite different than the Pharisees. They rejected the oral law. That's about the only good thing about them. They said if it's not written, then it's not law. And so we would appreciate that about them. However, they accepted only the Torah, the law of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That was it. That was the whole Bible for them. They denied resurrection. They denied angels. They emphasized sacrifice. But they were essentially, if I put it this way, the Sadducees were basically deists. They believed in God, but they believed that God was not really that interested in human affairs. And so they had to do things the best they could. And so they weren't that interested. They, they had some interest in sacrifice, but it was very uh, rote and religious for them. They rejected divine providence as well. That God does not intervene in the affairs of people. You have to do the best you can, which to me, of course, makes God not worthy of worship. Then you have the zealots. The zealots. And this is important because one of the zealots became an apostle, right? Simon the Zealot. And, and I suppose that, uh, over time, um, Simon the Zealot might have gotten irritated to still be called Simon the Zealot because that wasn't who he was in his saved state. Um, it, it's sort of like if, uh, if one of you had a big reputation for being a drunk before you got saved, and 10 years after your salvation, uh, you see me and I wave at you and say, hey, drunk man, you go, all right, that was a long time ago. But the zealots were extremely opposed to Roman rule. That's not bad. They refused to pay taxes. That's not necessarily bad because they believed they were giving to a wicked, evil system, and so there was a, a conscience issue there for them. But then they crossed the line. They terrorized their political opponents. They terrorized Roman rulers, um, their theology, if the zealots were alive today in America, we would, we would call them, um, we would call them Republican Christians in quotes, that they were all about politics. Uh, if you asked a zealot today, what do you think is going to save our country? They would say the elections in November, and that would be a big deal to them. Their theology was not God-centered. It was more of a fanaticism for the, the Torah and for Jewish faith. In, in other words, they, were, um, they waved the flag of the faith, but they didn't live the faith. And so uh, they would be, today we would call them cultural Christians. We would call them uh, those that say, uh, I believe in God, the church, and America. You know, and maybe not even in that order. And so we can sort of relate to the zealots because that sort of thinking has infiltrated American evangelicalism to a great degree. But they generally, uh, they did terrorize their political opponents and Roman rulers, um, but that was the exception to the the rule. The exception to the rule were a group of men called the Sicarii. 
The Sakari were an extreme zealot group. Sakari is from the Greek word uh, for dagger, and it means men of the dagger. They would stab those friendly to Rome in large crowds. And so they would carry weapons under their robes. And when you had a a large gathering that was pro-Rome, they would wander through the crowd and they would take out some people and they would stab to death um, people and then just make their way through the crowds. They were assassins um, from 50 to 70 AD. These assassins terrorized Judea. In fact, they were in charge of the revolt that eventually um, told Rome, it's time to stop this. And Rome brought a massive army to Jerusalem Um, Some of them fled to Masada and they were under siege by the Romans until those in Masada finally committed suicide. This is exactly the same time period that uh, Rome destroyed Jerusalem. Acts 21.38, they're called the assassins. And so they're they're important. They They are the sanctioned by society, the sanctioned rioters. They're the ones that uh, the law enforcement sometimes looked the other way if they were pro, if they were anti-Rome, and so um, a lot of very, very high political tensions happening here. And then, less uh, politically, you had the Essenes. They're not mentioned directly in the New Testament, to my, to my knowledge, but there were about four thousand of them scattered in villages of Judea. And some of them were at Qumran. Why is Qumran important? That's where the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. And the Essenes were the ones that took care of those scrolls and probably buried them there in those caves. They were very, very strict religiously. They refrained from marriage. Um, they, were ex- they had extreme asceticism where they, they denied themselves everything. They lived very, very simple, frugal lives. Um, the Essenes probably would have multiplied if they had gotten married, but they didn't marry and so they, they didn't hang around that long. Um, they rejected temple worship completely. They said, we're done with temple worship. It's so corrupted by the chief priests. It's so corrupted by the elders. We're just done with it. Uh, can we think of something like that in more recent history? Sure. How about all the independent Bible churches that said we're done with denominations? It's the same thing. We're one of those. You didn't know you were a rebel, did you? But, uh, but here we are. They rejected temple worship. They were very strict in their Sabbath requirements. Um, They were very end times oriented. What would we call an Essene today? A dispensationalist. Somebody who looks ahead to the coming of of God to the earth. Now, why are the Essenes important? Because we know almost certainly one man who was an Essene who was very, very prominent in the New Testament. His name is John the Baptist. Um, Remember, his parents were old by the time John uh, came into the world. And so it's very likely, historians believe, that John was raised um, primarily by the Essenes. How do we see John the Baptist? He's wearing skins and he has a rope for a, for a belt. He's eating bugs and honey. And so he lived like an Essene and he had excellent theology. And so the Essenes are important because they probably helped produce John the Baptist. So there's the, there are the parties um, in the... Old Testament, or in the, in the beginning of the New Testament. I'm just going to take three minutes because I think we can do this part quickly. Um, and that is, uh, oh, you already, you already did it. Thank you. We're going to introduce the Gospels. Not, not all of them uh, in detail, but just overall. Why are there four Gospels? Why are there multiple accounts? Uh, let me ask this question. Well, why not? Why not have four? 
Uh, there's no reason not to. But the precedent is set in the Old Testament to have multiple accounts of various events. We see this um, First and Second Chronicles is about 55% of it is a repeat of First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. So we have this all over the place. The main reason we have multiple accounts is because that was the Holy Spirit's plan. He has been pleased to do so. Um, what sort of literary type or genre uh, are the Gospels? All four Gospels have elements of every single literary genre. There's, there's history there are the, that emphasizes the acts of people. There are the memoirs. And the Gospels are sometimes called the memoirs of the apostles by the early church, if you, if you didn't know that. Their biography, they emphasize the, the lives of people rather than acts. And they stand alone as the only four examples of the genre of gospel. So when I say to you the gospels, you know what I'm talking about. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're the only four in that genre. And what makes them unique? Well, first of all, it's unknown in the Roman world. It's the first book of that kind ever written. They're the closest to the Old Testament in style and we would call the Gospels theological history or theological narrative. And so, you know, we've preached through two of the Gospels in full since I've been here at Grace. And they're just rich and dripping with theology. And yet they're all stories. And so they're the closest to the Old Testament. I, I just want to do one last thing and we'll just go to that last slide. Just to show you the relationship between the Gospels. And this might help answer the question, why four? Matthew was written first, A.D. 40 to 50. The primary audience was Jewish, and the, the uh, purpose of the gospel was didactic. It was to teach um, uh, the Jews. Mark, written in A.D. 4, uh, 64 to 68, the second to last gospel to be written, but in our Bible it comes second. It was, uh, had the primary audience of Gentiles, and it was evangelistic. Uh, if you're telling an unsaved Gentile you should read the Bible, don't tell him John, tell him Mark. Because Mark was written to unsaved Gentiles. And then you have the book of Luke, written between 50 and 58 and 60. Another Gentile audience, but it was to teach those who already have come to faith. Um, Luke is written to a man named Theophilus, a saved Roman, who wants to know that his faith is genuine. And then you have John, it's Jewish and it's evangelistic. So, if we can go to one last slide. Every person on earth is either a Jew or a Gentile and is either a believer or an unbeliever. You do the little genetic square that you learned in ninth grade biology, what does that mean? Matthew is written to Jewish believers, Mark to Gentile unbelievers, Luke to Gentile believers, and John for Jewish unbelievers. There's one gospel for every person on earth. So, from now on, depending on who you're speaking to. A Jew who thinks about coming to Christ, have him read John. A Jew who already knows Christ, tell him to read Matthew. So you can put that all together. So that's kind of our take a deep breath introduction to the New Testament. And next time around, we'll, we'll begin then uh, at, um, at the New Testament. Yes, we are at Matthew. Just wanted to make sure. So that'll actually be in two Sundays. All right, I'm super proud that you started your Lord's Day sitting through all of that. And um, I hope that helps you when you read your New Testament to pick out some of those words and go, oh, I understand that just a little bit better. Well, let's pray and then we'll be done. Thank you, Lord, for, the, for giving attention to the word of God, even just the background. But you've given us this background and it's so important for us to grasp the word of God. And now, Lord, in just a few minutes, we'll come formally before you with our hearts filled with joy and trembling.
our hearts filled with happiness in the Lord and the fearfulness of a mighty God. And so we ask you, Lord, to bring us humbly before you to receive your word, to sing the songs of our faith and to present to you our worship in humility and in thankfulness. And we pray in Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening.